Oh, man. You know, for the last few weeks, we've been talking about contemplation in the contemplative way. And, um, you know, the, the goal here has been to be building a case for the importance of contemplation, the importance of, of this, this particular way of approaching spirituality. And uh, I hope by now, some of you who have been going through the last few weeks with us are getting excited about com- contemplation, right? Getting excited about contemplation? <laughs> you know, it's, it, it's kind of an oxymoron to be excited about contemplation because contemplation is stepping away from the excitement now, isn't it? You know? But what we want to do is to build this case and build your curiosity at least enough to the point that you have desire enough to maybe start to actually do something, because contemplation is not something that can be understood. Well, maybe you can understand the techniques, but it has to be practiced. And in that respect, it's like anything that really is worth having in life. Anything worth having in life has to be performed, right? Practiced, right? I mean, the the really important things in life can't be purchased. They can't be bestowed. They have to actually be first-person experienced, so if you want to speak a second language or ride a bike or play a musical instrument, you know, play a sport. These things in life that we treasure the most, these things in life that we know when we see someone with skill, that we know behind it stood years of practice, that's valuable. That's worth something. It can't be purchased. Your spirituality is exactly the same way. Your recovery is exactly the same way. It can't be purchased. You can spend a lot of money doing it, but it can't be purchased. And that's the key here. If you finally get to the point where you have enough curiosity about what this is that we've been talking about up here, what this is that is a foundation, a cornerstone of what the effect is all about, this mindful, present, contemplative way of moving through life, then hopefully you'll begin to practice it. And that's what we wanted to do today. I want to start talking about how. How do you do this? What are some practical practical points? You know, And I don't know about you, but maybe this sounds like it's really complicated, Maybe it sounds like it's really otherworldly, you know, out of touch with real life, your real lives. Maybe you're thinking in your life, you know, Pastor, that's okay for you if you've got time to do this kind of stuff, but you ought to see what my life looks like. And I get that. I completely understand that. But it's so interesting to me that contemplation is nothing like that. It's not at all complicated. It is the simplest thing in the world. In fact, my four-year-old son was practicing the contemplative way of life when he was running circles inside that van that I told you about. Completely in touch, completely in the moment, completely devoid of thoughts about past or future or a laundry list of things that he needed to do or accomplish or what anybody else was thinking about him. Right? To jump down and say, I'm happy, you know, without worrying about, well, what's that person going to think of me? You know, it's just completely immersed in the present. It's simple, but it's difficult because we're not raised that way anymore. It's difficult because the hurts of life cause us to throw up our defensive walls, go into that defensive crouch, and to do everything that flies in the face of the vulnerability and the transparency that is the contemplative way of life, that is kingdom, as Jesus described it. And secondly, it's certainly not unworldly. In fact, it's the exact opposite of unworldliness, otherworldliness. It's an immersion into life, an immersion into the daily details. It's seeing every detail as significant, every person as connecting and connected. I wanted to read you just a little bit, uh, a couple of paragraphs from 
A journal entry that Thomas Merton wrote, we, this came up in our Wednesday group, and is just so appropriate for what we're talking about here. Because here's Thomas Merton, if you don't know, he's one of the few spiritual masters that our country has produced. You know, a true contemplative spiritual master. He joined the monast- monastery at, at Gethsemane in Kentucky in 1941. And for 17 years, he was practicing solitude. He was practicing isolation. He was practicing separation from the rest of the world because his monastery was a cloistered monastery. And you stayed in the monastery. In fact, he was lobbying to be allowed to have a hermitage, which was a, just a little one-room building off on the edge of the property where he could be completely alone. And then one day in 1958, he, had, he was tasked with going into Louisville to uh, just on errands and get things that the monastery needed. And there in the middle of the shopping district at 4th and Walnut, something happened to him. And this is the way he describes it. In Louisville, at the corner of 4th and Walnut, in the center of the shopping district, I was suddenly overwhelmed with the realization that I loved all those people, that they were mine and I theirs that we could not be alien to one another, even though we were total strangers. It was like waking from a dream of separateness, of spurious self-isolation in a special world, the world of renunciation and supposed holiness. The whole illusion of a separate holy existence is a dream. Not that I question the reality of my vocation as a monk or of my monastic life, but the conception of separation from the world that we have in the monastery too easily presents itself as a complete illusion. The illusion that by making vows we become a different species of being. Pseudo-angels, spiritual men, men of interior life, what have you. This sense of liberation from an illusory difference was such a relief and such a joy to me that I almost laughed out loud. I have the immense joy of being man a member of race in which God himself became incarnate. As if the sorrows and stupidities of the human condition could overwhelm me now that I realize what we all are. And if only everybody could realize this, but it cannot be explained. See, there's that cannot be bestowed, explained, purchased. There is just no way of telling people that they are all walking around shining like the sun. I love that. 17 years living in isolation, living in contemplation, to come full circle and realize that what that did for him was not separate him from the rest of humanity, not make him special or different from the rest of humanity, but actually drew him deeper in, drew him into the center of humanity. And there he had his epiphany, his connection, you know, full circle. You know, I can only shake my head sometimes when I think back what notions I had and what expectations or or paradigms I had uh, of what this spiritual journey was all about, how it worked. 25, 30 years ago when I was getting started in this, I worked so hard. You know, I think back the things I did, the time that I spent, all the trips I took to monasteries and this and that, I worked so hard because I thought it was something that I had to do. I thought the spiritual life was something that I had to attain. And I worked really, because I can be pretty OCD, let's face it. And so I applied all my OCD gifts to the spiritual thing now, instead of all the other stuff I had done before, right? But all I was doing was banging my head against the wall until I finally started to understand through 
contemplation through getting quiet. That it wasn't something I had to do, but it was just getting out of the way. Getting myself out of the way. Stopping to listen to that voice in my head that was telling me all these things that I had to do and had to be and had to accomplish and all of the theology that I had to understand and understand correctly. And when finally I could let go of all that stuff, out of the mist came this Jesus that I had never met before. A Jesus that spoke without contradiction. A Jesus that spoke with complete common sense. My God, to return to common sense, do you know what a a gift and a relief that was? That I didn't have to put my common sense on the door and believe things that, that made absolutely no sense or were absurd, and now I could have my God, I could have Jesus, and I could have common sense. It's like you having your cake and eating it too. It was just an amazing experience, but I had to get out of the way. I had to begin to realize that just simple presence, simple mindfulness, if you've heard that word before most likely, is really about 90% of the spiritual journey. Not because mindfulness is spiritual in itself, but because if you don't attain it, you can't get any further along the spiritual journey. Not the one that Jesus is talking about. Not the one that is the only way to Father, the only way to Kingdom, which is His expression for this way of living life that is present and connected and sees the unity in all things. To live life with the shepherd consciousness that we've been talking about. Moses living 40 years in the backwater of the Midian, just taking care of his sheep. With both the silence and the solitude that was necessary, but also the immense concentration to detail, really taking care of those sheep, tending the strays and doing everything that he needed to do. Immersed, grounded, in day-to-day details, but with an inner cleared space, you know, an inner cathedral that opened up and allowed things to happen, allowed him to be able to see that a bush that was burning, that was not necessarily such an uncommon event, was not being consumed, which is a very uncommon event. Being fully here now, immersed in life, immersed in the faces at hand, this is what I began to see. And this is what everyone has to begin to see. If we're really going to follow Jesus where he's going and not just where we think he's going, expect him to be going or want him to go because it's familiar to us, this won't feel familiar. It's probably going to be disorienting at first and disturbing even. But when you break through that, there's something else in terms of a liberation and a clarity. The other thing that I began to see was a mind was that I began to see mindfulness as a practice, as a value in Scripture itself. And you're probably thinking, is it really there? Is mindfulness in Scripture? You don't see that word so much, but it really is. Take a look at the passages that I selected here, and these are just a few of the many. But if you put on your mindfulness glasses, if you put on your presence glasses, like we've been talking about for the last few weeks it really gets obvious to see what is really going on here. Even in something like in the Decalogue, the the, the Ten Commandments at Exodus 20, verse 8, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Something as simple as that. There's mindfulness there? Really? What are you talking about? Well, the word that's translated remember there is zakar in Hebrew. And guess what it means? To be mindful. (laughs) 
It also means to record. It means to uh, to um, recount. It means to remember. It can mean a lot of things. But it means to bring something right to the forefront of your mind. To hold it there. To be mindful. To remember. The Sabbath day and keep it holy. And what is holy? Holy is kadash in Hebrew. That means to dedicate. We, we say to make holy. That's fine. Except we have kind of a skewed idea of what holiness means. You know, We think it means somehow transferring God's holiness into something that's not holy. Um, something that's profane and somehow God's holiness comes and fills it. You know, to a Jew, it wasn't anything like that because everything was already filled with God to a Jew's thinking. To make holy, to dedicate, was to set something aside for a specific purpose and to only have it used for that purpose. When a sacrifice was put on the altar, it was typically burned. That was... The, the, the symbol, not only to purify it before God, but also it wasn't going to be used for any other purpose but that because it was destroyed in the process. And so to make holy is to dedicate, to consecrate, to set aside, to keep, to preserve, to prepare, to purify, all those kinds of ideas. And so when you see here in Exodus 28, it's really the same thing twice. To remember, to recount, to bring to mind is the same thing as setting aside putting it in a special place for a special purpose. And it's not just the Sabbath day. We can do this every single moment of our lives. To take this moment and make it holy by making it mindful. To set it aside and dedicate it to God by bringing it to mind. Paul picks up the same thing at Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of your mind that, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So right off the bat, coming from the understanding of the words in Exodus, look at Romans 12. Present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice. We just said the sacrifice is that which is set aside, dedicated to a specific purpose and used for no other purpose. Acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship, to set yourself aside. In your mind, how many thoughts are multitasking up there right now? How many of you are really listening to what I'm saying right now? You know, one time I I was giving a talk and someone was translating an ASL, sign language for the deaf. And he's flapping away and everything I said. And I was having fun with him talking about chartreuse elephants and everything, just to watch him see how he would sign that. You know, I was messing with him a little bit. But I had to make the comment later on. I said, you know, this is really great to be translated this way because I know that at least one person is actually listening to every word I say. So with all the multitasking that you're doing, to make your mind a holy place is to clear the decks and set it aside for one purpose. That's to consecrate. That's to dedicate. That's kadash. And so to take ourselves as a living and holy sacrifice means through, this is, this is not killing ourselves and putting ourselves on the altar or hanging on the cross. This is every day living through our lives, but with a sense of and a dedication to the God that we say we served. And do not be conformed to this world This world, what's this world about? It's about the crush of details. It's about all the things that we have to do. It's about worrying about all the stuff that is still undone. 
Don't be conformed to that. But through the renewing of your mind. Ah, how do you renew your mind? By taking a vacation from all that junk that's going on constantly over and over again. How do you do that? By stepping aside from that. Clearing the space. Making it holy. See how all this stuff ties together? To prove what the will of God actually is. You will never know what the will of God is in your life until you get quiet enough to actually experience it. Because the will of God isn't in all the details, the what's of life. It is in the how, the way that we comport ourselves, the way that we choose, the way that we relate and love and live. That is the will of God. And how are you going to know that? How are you going to know what that is? How are you going to know what God is enough, who God is enough, to know who the heck you are enough to be in sync with God's will or what is good and acceptable and perfect? Jesus puts an even finer point on it at Matthew 6.24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. And wealth is a terrible translation of the word there. The word there is mamonas. Mamonas was the ancient Canaanite goddess of avarice and greed and wealth and all of that. And it is left untranslated here, both in the Aramaic and the Greek. But wealth is taking one sliver off the surface and not getting us down to where we need to understand It's not about just having money. There is nothing wrong with having money. All things considered, have lots of money. That's a good thing. But are you defined by your money? Are you defined by whatever it is that you have spent your life piling up in your own storehouses? Whatever that happens to be. Maybe it's just your talent. Maybe it's your good looks. Maybe it's your accomplishments. Maybe it is your wealth. Maybe it's your fame. Maybe it's your religiosity how much you've studied the Bible, whatever it is that you have spent time building up and would now put on the back license plate of your car, identifying you as that thing, that is your mammon. That's your mammonas. And see, by identifying with all the details and all the things in our lives, how in the world are we going to identify with Allaha? which is the Aramaic word for God, which means unity and oneness and multiple things functioning as one, pure connection. We can't have that if we're identified over here with all that stuff, our obsessions, our compulsions, our addictions, all the things that we think we need in order to survive. Jesus is saying, hey, can't do it. You're going to have to clear the decks and you're going to have to get to a place where you can realize what you're about. Then you can go back to the details and work them as you need to, but the tail is no longer wagging the dog. You're not identified with what you do or those things that we obviously need in physical life. We use them as they're supposed to be used, as tools, as things that we need to get through, and we are free now to let our resources flow to those who need them. It's exactly what Jesus is talking about here. Then moving on. For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life. This is also Matthew 6. As to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body, as to what you will put on, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Do not be worried about your life. What's he talking about here? Let go of the future. Let go of the past. Let go of the anxiety for the future. Let go of the regret for the past. Let go of all those million details that you constantly worry about. Be here now. 
And then he's going to give us a couple of examples of mindfulness. Look at the birds of the air, he says. That they do not sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, they do not spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? This is it. Images of mindfulness. You know, Take a look at the birds. How many times do you really see birds during your day? We blow through life at 60 miles an hour. Hey, birds, what the heck are you talking about? Unless it drops something on your windshield, you really aren't noticing birds, right? And flowers and lilies and these things. To slow down. To be mindful. To see things as they are and as they present to you. To really see your burning bush. The burning bush was commonplace, relatively, in the desert but to take the time to notice that it's not being consumed, to take the time to notice what the birds are actually doing, to take the time to then make the connection. Yeah, they work hard, but they work right here and right now. They're not planning for the future, worried about the future. They just get up and do what they do. Can we be more like that? Jesus is saying emphatically, yes, we can. We don't need to spend so much time in our heads everywhere except right here and right now. Finally, we can start to see things again as if for the first time. Psalm 26, verse 2, Test me, Lord, and try me. Examine my heart and my mind, for I have always been mindful of your unfailing love and have lived in reliance on your faithfulness. And here, the poet is hitting the two twin issues that need to be hit. To be mindful of your unfailing love. To be mindful of the birds, ultimately, is to drill down and realize those birds are there because of the unfathomable, unconditional, absolute love that brought everything into being and undergirds everything and holds it together. They're an expression of that. The life, the color, the playfulness, everything that they do, the noise, that's an expression, an explosion of this love. And when you consider that, when you consider the flowers, when you consider each other and you're really just immersed in what's going on and you're just amazed because you're really seeing, is this for real? We don't see it. It loses all its color. It loses all its flavor because we're not here and we're now. But to drill down and realize that's an expression of this love. And then finally, to live in reliance of your faithfulness, to understand that all of this, everything is a gift, a free gift that we could never give ourselves. This next breath is a gift that we could never give ourselves. And so, yes, we are dependent. Hooray! It's liberating to realize that you're dependent as long as the one that you're dependent to is faithful. Otherwise, it's a nightmare, isn't it? And we've all been there, being dependent on people who were not trustworthy. And so now we think we need to do it ourselves and we need to hang on to what we need to hang on to in order to survive. And everything goes back to front. To be mindful, to see things as they are, to realize that it's an expression of love and to live in the vulnerability and the dependence and the submission to that love. This is what the psalmist is talking about. 
And finally at Luke 17, Jesus is saying flat out, the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is or there it is. For behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. And the word there can mean within, it can mean among. And in the Aramaic, it means a dynamic movement from inside to out. But the point is, this kingdom, this life that Jesus is talking about, this only way to the Father is within us, moving from inside to outside, or it doesn't exist at all. It's not out there. You can't conjure it up in your head. You experience it moment by moment, or you don't. Every moment you have a choice to move into it, to clear the decks and be present, or you don't. No recriminations, no judgment, because guess what? There's another moment coming around the corner, and you have the choice all over again. String enough of those moments together into mindfulness, into kingdom, and now you're characterized by it, and your life is changing before your eyes, and you won't even know it at first, but it'll be there in the choices you make, in the triggers that disappear in your life. It's an amazing thing to see that happen. All of this is here in Scripture. How did we miss it? Because we're not reading it with this mindset. We're not reading it through these lenses. But some of us have. All through the ages, there have been Christians who swam against the current. Christians who went against the legalism and the institutionalism that really became so much of the Western Church's expression of faith. And one of them is Brother Lawrence. And he's one of my heroes. Brother Lawrence is someone who was born in uh, 1611 in Lorraine, France. He was born Nicholas Herman. Ever heard that name before? Nicholas Herman was his given name. You always take a religious name when you move into a, a religious order. But he was born so poor, lived so poor, was uneducated. He had no way to support himself. And so he joined the army. It's all, all he could do. At least he could get meals and a small stipend. But it was kind of like him enlisting in the army in 1968 during the Vietnam conflict. It's like, well, you know where you're going. Well, he enlisted right during the Thirty Years' War, which was the last great religious war of Europe. The Protestants and the Catholics were fighting. It was the most destructive war historically uh, that Europe has ever faced. It's much more so than, than World War II in terms of the cost. Most of the countries that were fighting went bankrupt. Millions of lives were lost not only to the fighting, but to famine and, and all sorts of other problems. But he gets drawn into this conflict. And there's a point at which during this period, he has a moment. And it's a moment in the dead of winter where he's standing somewhere and looking at this tree that is all gnarled and just branches and for all intents and purposes looks completely dead. Just stick branches against a leaden sky. And as he's watching this dead thing, all of a sudden this insight comes to him that deep down in the center of the trunk and deep down in the roots there is still life. And all it needs is the right conditions to burst forth and rebloom. And he realized that's exactly where he was at. Completely dead from the outside in. All gnarled and horrible looking, but inside there was life. And all it needed was the right conditions, the love of his father to be able to take him out. You know, the, the amazing thing about this, if you want to call it a conversion experience, this spiritual experience, this epiphany that, that uh, Herman had, Nicholas had, was that it wasn't a supernatural vision. Not the way we understand a supernatural vision. What it was, was a supernatural insight to a very commonplace event. 
You want to talk about a burning bush? That's exactly what the burning bush was. Not a supernatural event, but there was a presence within the event and Moses had to be present enough to actually see it. And Brother Lawrence had to be present enough to watch long enough to be able to see the fullness of what was actually going on. And it's so characteristic of him. When you understand his spirituality, you see that it's a perfect expression for the way he would encounter God. He got wounded in the war and had to quit the service. He limped for the rest of his life. He tried being a footman, a valet, you know, for some, uh, some of the higher ups. And he called himself a great awkward person who broke everything. So he wasn't too good at that. So finally, at age 26, ripe old age of 26, he entered the uh, Carmelite monastery in Paris, mostly to amend for his sins, mostly because he expected to be punished for all the awkward and horrible things that he had done in his life. And he said he was disappointed because he just found God. (laughs) But because he was uh, uneducated, he was a lay brother, which means he wasn't ordained, which means he wasn't like the choir monks who got to do all the fun stuff. He, as a lay monk, was just put into manual labor and he was assigned to the kitchen as one of the cooks and a dishwasher. And at first he resented it. But through years, not just, not just years, but actual decades of service and submission and dependence and vulnerability, what he learned, of course, was that God was just as present in the kitchen as he was in the chapel in front of the Blessed Sacrament or anywhere else that he could possibly be. And as he went forward, he realized that he didn't need all of those special devotions. He didn't even need a spiritual director because he was going right to the source, connected to the source all the time in the midst of the messy, horrible, smoky kitchen He was always connected to his God. And so, for Lawrence, it wasn't about spectacular things. It wasn't about specially created events. It was just about going through life the way you normally did, but with this deeper sight, with this connection that allowed him to see beneath the surface. We don't know a heck of a lot about Lawrence. He really didn't write a book. The book that bears his name, The Practice of the Presence of God, is really a collection of letters and transcribed conversations and a few scraps that he wrote that they found in his room after he died. But I want to read you a really short letter. It's his fourth letter. And it really just shows you the simplicity in the heart of what he was trying to do. He's writing to someone, a woman, um, just a friend, who was really going through a difficult time. And he writes, Madam, I feel very sorry for you. If you can leave the care of your affairs to Mansoor and Madam N and busy yourself only with praying to God, you will overthrow the power that presently governs your life and replace it with a better power. He, God, does not require a great deal of us. All he asks is a little remembrance of him from time to time, a little worship. Sometimes we should ask for his grace and sometimes we should offer him our sufferings. At other times we ought to thank him for the grace he has given us and which he is working in us. In the midst of your work, console yourself. In the midst of your work, console yourself with him as often as you can. During your meals and your conversations, lift your heart towards him from time to time. The slightest little remembrance will always be very pleasant to him. To do this, you do not need to shout out loud. He is closer than we think. We do not have to be constantly in church to be with God. We can make our heart a prayer room into which we can retire from time to time to converse with him gently, humbly, and lovingly. Everyone is capable of these familiar conversations with God. 
some more, some less. He knows what our capabilities are. Let us begin, for perhaps he is only awaiting a generous resolve on our part. Take courage, for we have little time left to live. You are almost 64 years old and I'm approaching 80. Let us live and die with God. Our sufferings will always be sweeter and more pleasant when we are with him. And without him, our greatest pleasure will be but a cruel torture. May he be blessed by all. Amen. So make it a habit, little by little, to worship him in this way. Ask him for his grace and offer him your heart from time to time during the day in the midst of your work, at every moment if you are able. Do not constrain yourself by rules or private devotions. Do not constrain yourself by rules and private devotions. You get that? It's so Lawrence. It's so perfect. Offer him your heart in faith with love and humility. You can ensure Monsieur and Madame de N and Mademoiselle N that I am offering my poor prayers for them as well and that I am their servant and yours in particular in our Lord, Brother Lawrence. That is so characteristic of him. It's not that anything is wrong with church. Don't stop coming. It's okay. But don't constrain yourself here. Don't think this is the only place of connection. It's not. It's just another expression. It's a great expression. It's a corporate expression. It's where we can lean on each other in like mind. But taking whatever we get out of here and continuing to live it through our day and our week, that is what Lawrence is talking about. He said, men men invent means and methods of coming at God's love. They learn rules and set up devices to remind them of that love. And it seems like a world of trouble to bring oneself into the consciousness of God's presence. Yet it might be so simple. Is it not quicker and easier just to do our common business wholly for the love of him? Don't change a thing. Don't change the what. Change the how within the what. And everything becomes sacred, dedicated, kadash. You see? He says, I began to live as if there were no one save God and me in the world. And as often as I could, I placed myself as a worshiper before him, fixing my mind upon his holy presence, recalling it when I found it wandering from him, the mind wandering off topic. This proved to be an exercise frequently painful, yet I persisted through it and through all difficulties. All right, so we're not all cooks, we're not all monks. We're not living in the 17th century here. So what can we do? What's really relevant? How can, we, how can we actually pull this thing off? At the bottom of your bulletins, there's a series of, of six little titles there, and I want to read them for you. Just read a little bit about each one. These are mindfulness exercises. These are things that we can do every single day that can start to bring us into a greater sense of presence, a greater sense of contemplation. And this is not even talking about meditation or centering prayer or anything that is formal, anything that is dedicated to a certain time of day. This is just throughout the day. And I know I'm going to throw a lot of stuff at you, so just listen. If you're really interested, if you're one of those who is curious and wants to delve in further, the the full printout of what I'm going to read, there's a few copies on the table outside, and you can grab one and take it home. And if they all get taken, that would be a lovely thing. And you don't get one, email me and I'll... I'll email it to you because these are simple things that we can do. The first one is mindful breathing. See it there? This exercise can be done standing up or sitting down and pretty much anywhere at any time. All you have to do is be still and focus on your breath just for one minute. Be still. Focus on your breath for one minute. Start by breathing in and out slowly. One cycle should last for approximately six seconds. Breathe in through your nose and out through your mouth, letting your breath flow effortlessly in and out of your body. 
Let go of your thoughts for a minute. Let go of the things you have to do later today or pending projects that need your attention. Simply let yourself be still for one minute. Purposefully watch your breath, focusing your senses on its pathway as it enters your body and fills you with life, and then watch it work its way up and out of your mouth. If you were someone who thought they'd never be able to meditate, guess what? You're halfway there already. If you enjoyed one minute of this mind-calming exercise, why not try two or three or twenty or thirty? Mindful observation. This exercise is simple but incredibly powerful. It's designed to connect us with the beauty of the natural environment, something that is easily missed when we are rushing around in the car or hopping on and off trains on the way to the work. Here's the, consider the lilies of the field and look at the birds of the air. Choose a natural object from within your immediate environment and focus on watching it for a minute or two. This could be a flower or an insect or even the clouds or the moon. Don't do anything except notice the thing that you are looking at. Simply relax into a harmony for as long as your concentration allows. Look at it as if you are seeing it for the first time. Visually explore every aspect of its formation. Allow yourself to be consumed by its presence. Allow yourself to connect with its energy and role and purpose in the natural world. And you can do this just having a cup of coffee in the morning, sitting in your front room, sitting in your back patio, and just watch. Just be watching. You know, just in the, in the space of 10 or 15 minutes, the light changes. It moves. It's like the hands of a clock. It's amazing how fast the shadows will move if you're watching them and conscious of them. Pick a spot, see how they move. Just that much. And listening to the birds and feeling the temperature of the air can bring you into this place. You know, take a break at work. Go out. I, I, I laughingly tell our folks here, when you smoke a cigarette, feel the smoke go all the way down and all the way, you know, be present to the cigarette. Whatever it is you're doing, be there. Take a good memory away, okay? This is what it's all about. Mindful awareness. This exercise is designed to cultivate a heightened awareness and appreciation of simple daily tasks and the results they achieve. Think of something that happens every day more than once. Something you take for granted, like opening a door, for example. At the very moment you touch the doorknob to open the door, stop for a moment and be mindful of where you are, how you feel in that moment, and where the door will lead you. I know it sounds a little weird, but flow with it. (laughs) Similarly, the moment you open your computer to start work, take a moment to appreciate the hands that enable this process and the brain that facilitates your understanding of how to use that computer. These touch point cues don't have to be physical ones. For example, each time you think a negative thought, you might choose to take a moment to stop, label the thought as unhelpful, and release the negativity. Or perhaps each time you smell food, you take a moment to stop and appreciate how lucky you are to have a good, to have good food to eat and share with your family and friends. Choose a touch point that resonates with you today. Instead of going through your daily motions on autopilot, take occasional moments to stop and cultivate purposeful awareness of what you are doing and the blessings that it brings your life. How about mindful listening? This exercise is designed to open your ears to sound in a non-judgmental way. Non-judgmental way. Jesus makes a big thing at the top of Matthew 7 about not judging. And we think of it in terms of condemning others. But really, it is about just not judging this moment, this thought, this experience, just letting it be what it is. Children do that instinctively. They just accept the world as presented to them. 
So much of what we see and hear on a daily basis is influenced by our past experiences. But when we listen mindfully, we achieve a neutral present awareness that lets us hear sound without preconception. Select a piece of music you have never heard before. You may have something in your own collection. See, that's mindfulness right back there. Did you hear that? That you have never listened to. Or you might choose to turn the radio dial until something catches your ear. Close your eyes, put on your headphones. Try not to get drawn into judging the music by a genre or title or artist name before it has begun playing. Instead, ignore any labels and neutrally allow yourself to get lost in the journey of sound for the duration of the song. Allow yourself to explore every aspect of the track. Even if the music isn't to your liking at first, let go of your dislike and give your awareness full permission to climb inside the track and dance among the sound waves. The idea is to just listen, to become fully entwined with the composition without preconception or judgment of the genre, artist, lyrics, or instrumentation. Mindful immersion. The intention of this exercise is to cultivate contentment in the moment and escape the persistent striving we find ourselves caught up in on a daily basis. Rather than anxiously wanting to finish an everyday routine task in order to get on with doing something else, take that regular routine and fully experience it like never before. For example, if you're cleaning your house, pay attention to every detail of the activity. Rather than treat this as a regular chore, create an entirely new experience by noticing every aspect of your actions. Thich Nhat Hanh says, when you're washing the dishes, really wash the dishes. You know, just feel the soap, feel the viscosity of that, yeah? It's, it's kind of like this. Feel and become the motion when sweeping the floor. Wax on, wax off, right? <laughs> Whatever sticks in your head. I'm trying to get all these things out there. Sense... Sense the muscles you use when scrubbing the dishes. Develop a more efficient way of wiping the windows clean. The idea is to get creative and discover new experiences within a familiar routine task. Instead of laboring through and constantly thinking about finishing the task, future tripping, become aware of every step and fully immerse yourself in the progress and the process. Take the activity beyond a routine by allowing yourself with it aligning yourself with it physically, mentally, and spiritually. Who knows? You might even enjoy cleaning for once. I don't know about that, but you could. It could happen. Mindful appreciation. Last one. In this last exercise, all you have to do is notice five things in your day that usually go unappreciated. These things can be objects or people. It's up to you. Use a notepad to check off five by the end of the day. The point of this exercise is to simply give thanks and appreciate the seemingly insignificant things in life, the things that support our existence but rarely get a second thought amidst our desire for bigger and better things. For example, electricity powers your kettle, the postman delivers your mail, your clothes provide you warmth, your nose lets you smell the flowers in the park, your ears let you hear the birds in the tree by the bus stops. But do you know how these things, these processes came to exist or how they really work? Have you ever properly acknowledged how these things benefit your life and the lives of others? Have you ever thought about what life might be like without these things? Have you ever stopped to notice their finer, more intricate details? Have you ever sat down and thought about the relationships between these things and how together they play an interconnected role in the functioning of the earth? Once you have identified your five things, make it your duty to find out everything you can about their creation and purpose to truly appreciate the way in which they support your life. Six simple ways. You don't have to do them all. 
Pick one. See what it does for you on an ongoing basis. It's you coming back to this over and over again that's going to make the difference. It's not a one-shot deal. Don't expect to get some insight or download from God. It's just allowing yourself to be. You know, the ancient Jews and Orthodox Jews to this day prayed three times a day. They prayed in the morning at the third hour, which is about 9 a.m. They prayed at the ninth hour, which is about 3 p.m. And they prayed again at sundown. And each one of those was a call to prayer where everything stopped. Think about that. To have touch points during the day where everything stops and you just acknowledge your God. It doesn't have to be a set prayer thing. Even if you just stopped and had just a moment. Could you set an alarm for yourself on your cell phone that would just ring you at set times during the day with a special ring that you know is just time to stop for just a few seconds and just recenter, reground, maybe notice where the heck your head is at that particular moment and bring it back, bring it down and get those points happening in your life that will really bring you down, back into presence, back into connection. You know, you can probably say, well, gee, is this stuff really spiritual? And the truth is, no, not in themselves. They're not. They're just physical. They're things that we can do. They're techniques. We can do them. We cannot do them. But where are they going to take you? That's the question that you need to ask yourself. When you move into these mindful places, these places full of presence, when you start to acknowledge the interconnectedness of all these things, and you become aware more and more that there is this woven web that connects all of us, you know, not just in this room, but in this entire planet, the entire universe, if you will, to become aware of that, to see how that connection works. These things can bring us back to the only place that we can intersect with our God. God is everywhere and God is everywhere, but we're only here and now. If we're going to connect with God, if we're going to intersect our paths with Him, it's only when we are here and now fully and completely so that we can see the bush that is burning and not being consumed. We can see the tree that looks dead but has life. We can see whatever it is that's in front of us that is pointing to the life that's beneath. But we won't see it if we're powering through. Jesus said, I and the Father are one. When? Where? How? This is how. This one way to the Father. This is how he and the Father are one. And then he turned to us and said, these things you see me do, you can do. And greater things than these. We can do this. It's a promise. But it's also a challenge. Because it'll take some time for us to cut through all of the stuff and to get back to what is real. See, that's spiritual. That's oneness with Father. And when we have that in hand, all else is going to be added. Be curious. Practice something. Take one thing and try it and see if it can start to bring you where you really need to be. Let's pray. Father, you are perfect presence. We can only try to reflect that. Your perfect love, we can only try to reflect that. But help us to reflect better. Help us to enter into where we came from in you. Help us to return to you in the same way. We want to know you better, Lord. We want to be able to live our lives at a different pitch, a different 
relational understanding. We just know that we know that we're connected and we're with you. Help us to do that. Help us to push through whatever inertia there is. Push through whatever resistance there is to start doing the first thing that can start to show us another way that we can live and live more fully with more abundance. Thank you for loving us, Lord. Help us never forget we can only love because you loved us first. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's all stand.